On today's episode, I welcome the one and only Bob Mester to share how we can effectively align our organizations around the progress our customers are trying to make. You know, that job to be done that they hire our products for? Well, Bob is a longtime builder with diverse experiences in different industries and different types of products. He's famous for the work he did with Clay Christensen in building the jobs to be done framework. And today, Bob is the president and CEO of the Rewired Group. He's also an adjunct lecturer of innovation and entrepreneurship in the executive MBA program at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Business. He's a research fellow at the Clay Christensen Institute and the author of many wonderful books, some of which we'll talk about today. With all that Bob is going on, he was kind enough to jump on the pod with me and share. And I'm super grateful because it was a fantastic conversation where I learned a ton, and I know you will too. This is Lessons in Product Management. Let's get started. Hey, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. So to kick things off, I'm, I'm sure most of the folks listening know who you are, but for, for the few who might not, could you give a, a quick introduction of yourself and what you do? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, that's why I would always call myself a builder. I've been uh, breaking things for, for over 50 years, fixing things for 45 years. So I didn't get in trouble, but I've been building things for over 35 years. And I've, I've worked on, you know, everything from uh, cars and rockets and missiles and software. And uh, if you walk in the grocery store, you walk into Home Depot. I've worked on a lot of products in all those different spaces. And so for the most part, I'm, uh, I'm somebody who loves to build. That's awesome. Right. And I think uh, I'm, also known, I'm also known for basically building the framework around uh, jobs to be done with uh, Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. So that's, that's my other claim to fame, if you will. Absolutely. And I know we're going to touch on jobs, jobs today. Yep. Um, and I think most product managers listening who, who hear about jobs to, be, jobs to be done, think of it in like the product management frame. But yes. I know you've been doing a lot of work lately with other parts of the organization around jobs. So could you touch on that a little bit? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the book you so I've been, I've been doing, uh, so I, I've, uh, I, I wrote a book last, uh, um, when COVID started. And basically it was, uh, it's called Demand Side Sales. And it's using the Jobs Be Done framework to help sales organizations uh, basically focus on helping people buy as opposed to us trying to push and sell a product to them. And so using the framework around that, and then uh, I'm working on a book uh, right now that's around um, um, flipping the lens on employment. So basically employees hiring companies. And so how do we actually help frame the progress you wanna make uh, to help you find the next job you wanna actually go pursue? And so it's using jobs around kind of the the uh, are you making progress in your career kind of thing. And so I've been using it in kind of different places. Also, I've been uh, doing a project for almost four years around religion, just around <laughs> what causes people to say today's the day they're going to switch from one religion to another. So I've been using it in a lot of different places just to kind of because uh, I'm curious, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing how, how far reaching like the implication of, of the jobs framework and jobs theory has to, to every parts of life in the organization. So yeah. it's really cool that you're like diving into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so I'm I'm. Um, I just uh, wrapped up a book called Learning to Build, which will be out in uh, uh, September. But that one is just kind of the basic skills. But it's, I, I think about it as most entrepreneurs and innovators know how to uncover demand. Uh, jobs is what I would say is a method or a tool that you use to kind of do that. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who 
have other methods and tools that, that do the same thing. But I fundamentally kind of look at the world is that nothing is random and everything is caused and nobody buys my product or service randomly and that I need to actually understand that causality. And so that's kind of like, what, what job are they hiring my product for? And that's kind of how I, I've kind of framed the world and I see it through that lens. And as my family can attest to, I can't unsee it. <laughs> So I'm really curious in like the origin story, right? So like I read uh, Competing Against Luck and like the, the milkshake story, I think is pretty, pretty famous. Yep. So did, did jobs start as like a, like a, a way to figure out how we sell more or was it a way to figure out how to build better products? So, 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 um, so this is, let's see, I got to make sure I hit the right camera. This, this one. So this is my, this is my office and these are my four mentors. Uh, uh, Dr. Willie Moore, Dr. Genichi Taguchi, Clay Christensen, and uh, Dr. Deming, right? And one of the things that uh, really started all this was back in the, in the late 80s. Um, one of the things that, that uh, Taguchi used to talk about all the time was this notion of um, what I would say is that all problems are problems of variation. And that we needed to understand how things work and that most times we would fix the variation of one thing to cause another. And so for example, uh, I worked uh, at Ford in the time and we'd do like paint systems and we'd, we'd have, uh, when we did the painting, all of a sudden you'd have these drips or these runs. And so what we would do is we'd adjust everything and we'd get rid of the runs, but then we'd get uh, uh, orange peel because it would be too thin. And so you'd realize we just end up kind of running in circles around these things. And so one of the things that, that Takuchi really focused me on was how do we actually find the right measures and understand the function of something? Hmm. Well, as engineers, we're actually taught more about problems than we are about functions. And so it started as what, what job does this system do? What, like, what is it primarily supposed to be doing as opposed to what problems does it have? Because almost all the time people would kind of design what it's not supposed to do as opposed to what it does. And so it actually started in the engineering realm for me as a way to talk about function and what people, uh, what systems are supposed to do. And then I got involved in a method called quality function deployment, which is a uh, series of uh, voice of the customer exercises to actually translate it down to the voice, uh, down to kind of the factory floor. And one of the things that we started to realize there is that the fact is, is like, you know, what's the function of the, like, what's, what's the function the customer wants? And so that's where we kind of got to the point of like saying, like, we, we, we frame that as, you know, what, what job does the customer have that pulls our systems in, uh, yeah, pulls our product in. And so part of it was basically all this early voice of the customer work that we would do around kind of what progress are people trying to make. And that, that, that was in the late 80s, early 90s when we started to do that. And then I moved into the food industry where we, we applied it uh, a lot in terms of just uh, from the customer side of the world. And that's where the milkshake is there and Snickers and a uh, whole bunch of other kind of examples were wrapped around that. And then, you know, the rest is kind of history. That's very cool. And so like, as I've been reading about jobs and studying, like reading the literature on it for, from you and from others, it, things started to like pop in my mind, right? Because as a product manager, the whole concept of personas is like yeah. a hotly debated topic. There's yeah. like marketing personas around demographics and gender and, and so, yeah. so forth. But like in product personas could, could take on a different, like a, a different I guess, uh, frame. Tone. They take on a different tone, if you will, kind of right. thing like it. And this is where um, I think that, that jobs really kind of came from this notion of that what most companies were doing at the time were they were, they were spending, they were, they were using marketing research, right? And marketing research is, is more or less, you know, they have to figure out what to say about the product. 
So for example, it's got to be fun or it's got to be easy. Like how do we gather that voice and how do we write copy for it? And then the other part is that most of marketing buys media is all bought by, uh, by basically demographics, psychographics, and personas. And so what happens is that's their currency of how they actually work. But in the end, as an engineer or as a builder, like, like I got to make it fun. Like, how do you cause fun? Like, how do you cause it to be easy? And when you kind of look at this, you start to realize there's like, there's, there's actually 22 different definitions of easy of where and when and how, and like, and so you start to realize like, they just know easy, but they, they would never tell me where or when. And so a lot of times personas get us into trouble because we know who they are, but we don't know why they do what they do. And it's the context that creates the value for people, not, not, the, not, not, just the, not just who they are. It's who, when, where, and why that's most important that frames what I call a job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just had a discussion with a gentleman the other day around pricing and like the, the oh, concept yeah. of jobs came back up, right? Because his, his statement was that pricing really comes down to positioning. And to me, positioning comes from understanding the job that the customer is trying to do and how your product like how you position that product to be hired to do that job. That's right. And so like, I guess any, any thoughts around like how, as, as we build product and, and as we work with our product marketing counterparts, um, how we leverage the learnings from maybe job interviews to better collaborate with our, our product marketing counterparts. Yeah, I think, I think, so for example, the way I always think about it is that context adds as much value as the product right? You put the, you put a product in the wrong context and people won't pay anything for it. Right. And so part of it is to realize where is the context where it actually adds the most value. And that's part of positioning. Right. And so you start to realize that, that, and, and the positioning is two things. One is it's not the positioning I want it to be as the company. It's the positioning for the consumer to know that it will do that job. Right. And so when you get to pricing, this is where people get pricing wrong because they, they, they end up trying to average everything. And what you end up doing is when you take all the different situations of how people might eat a Snickers bar or eat or do something or download a piece of software, the reference point actually of where they're coming from dictates kind of what they think a value is. They're willing to pay more to make progress. And if they have nothing and they're going to something, at some point you have to be able to understand like what are they actually, what is their value code to do that? So in the early days, I would say jobs was actually about deciphering people's value code to know what they were willing to pay more for and what they weren't willing to pay anything for. And so it really gets down to kind of what actions do they want? And what if they make the if, if we make this promise and we deliver on it, will will they pay that money? And so it's about making that bet or understanding kind of the proposition that we're that we're willing to do. But but context matters where if we just try to average it, we end up usually always going to the lowest common denominator to find the lowest price. And, it, and, and to be honest, that doesn't help us at all. Right. Or look at our competitors and just price a little bit lower, a little bit higher based on what we think our feature set difference is. That's right. That's right. Well, this is where you end up into feature creep, right? You, you, uh, I talk about the difference between what I call the supply side of the world and the demand side of the world. And the supply side will compare features between, let's say, cameras or between software and say, we have this, they have that. But the reality is most people, if they're in a, in a certain context, they don't need half those features. They don't even know what those features mean. And so part of it is, is that at some point we're making it more complicated by actually comparing and contrasting as opposed to understanding the very specific context they're in and the outcomes that they want. Right. 
because even looking at competitors, right? Like you're assuming that your competitors did the work to understand the jobs, to know how to position the features to yep. accomplish their jobs. <laughs> and that's a dangerous well, assumption. Well, the thing is, this is that, that I, I believe that a lot of the industry um, kind of uh, parameters are defined by the financial community because it's about the, 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 the investment. It's about scale. It's about kind of like what things behave the same. But when you flip over to the demand side, you know, basically what competes with a new mattress is a bottle of z right? <laughs> and you start to realize like there's these really strange things that people compete in their head, like and, and the notion of Snickers and Milky Way and, and, and all of the industry, uh, you know, language would say like they compete. But if you actually ask a customer the last time they had a Snickers or the last time they had a Milky Way, you realize when they had a Snickers, they thought of a Red Bull, they thought of coffee, they thought of a sandwich. They, they didn't think of a Milky Way. And so they actually don't compete in, in that perspective. So part of it is that that context is so important. For sure. And so as we move from like product development to product marketing down to, to sales and referencing mm-hmm. the, the book that you wrote, like in a lot of cases, I've, I've seen product marketing be responsible for sales enablement. So, so how does, does that kind of connect in terms of like, is that kind of the natural progression of the flow that you see down to the, the sales side? Well, yeah. So, so what I did is I basically took the sales funnel and flipped it. And basically okay. said, like, I, like, we have a lead, but at some point we don't know, you know, where they are in their buying process. So let's understand how people buy. And, and when you start to unravel how people buy, it's like there's a first thought. And then there's something we, we phrased as passive looking, where they're learning about that problem, learning about the solution set. And then there's active looking. And then there's deciding. And then there's actually first use. And marketing's role is to actually help create the space in the brain for that solution to fall into. So when they have the struggling moment to know that it's something they should be doing. And, and at the same time, sales's job is to actually help them go from uh, a passive looking to active looking to deciding. And so if you actually think about how to help people buy as opposed to how do we sell, it changes a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the, a lot of the information, a lot of the, 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 the materials we need. And to be honest, the sequencing, because most people think, well, wait, they did a demo, they, we should close. <laughs> well, there's like a demo at, at, at passive looking where it's, I got to learn about it. And there's a, a demo at active looking where it's about show me the possibilities. And then there's another demo about deciding, which is about help me make the trade-offs. And so ultimately the, the demo might have to, like I've, I've worked with some organizations now where we have actually three demos. And to be honest, we've been able to actually do it faster and actually double sales by having three, because now we can actually ask people, which demo do they need because of where they are in their buying timeline? Yeah. What are your thoughts around like the, the two different methods of like sales led to, to product led growth, right? Like the demo model versus like the free trial model kind of in this, this frame around um, using jobs for sales. Yeah. So, so I, I think those are all, how do I say, uh, I think they're industry or context specific, right? I think there's things where, where there is self-service and people have to explore. But the thing is, is I think people overvalue like the notion of a download. Well, they're downloading it so that they're, they're a customer and they're a free trial. Like, well, no, they're impassive looking. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm trying to figure it out. And they're like, oh, we should be able to convert that, right? And so they, they're not thinking about the right notion of how do people actually convert and what progress are they trying to make? And then ultimately when they make that progress, how does your product fit into their lives now that, that, you know, over time? And so that's where every new innovation creates kind of a new struggling moment in a different dimension. And so part of this is to actually, you have to be watching what your customers and the progress they're making and what they're struggling with, even when they're using your product. 
So I think I think to me that the the demo model is 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 good to help demonstrate, but it also uses to educate. Um, and I think the the, the free trial. I, I'm not a big proponent of free trial only because I don't feel the the currency there is then time that they're committing time to learn it to do it. And at some point in time, it's hard to actually help them make trade offs because they don't know how much time they have to invest. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, I can download it and I put it on my phone, but like, you know, I, I had five minutes and I looked at it, but it's like, you need 45 minutes to actually do it. And if I didn't put money against it, I'm not willing to necessarily put the 45 minutes in to learn it. Makes sense. I guess it goes back to, to strategy and trade-offs, right? Like, yep. um, can you educate well enough in the product versus like, do you need to have a person involved in the, the education cycle? That's right. That's right. So the, the other part is that window, like where's the window where they like, so for example, we're working on this, uh, uh, this book on helping people kind of find their, how do you make progress in your career? Well, like when you're, when you get let go from somewhere, like there's no time to go, like you're, you're almost in panic mode. Like, all right, I got to go find something. Let me get the resume. Like, and so you start to realize like, there's no way to inject a book or some software or anything into those moments. So we're trying to actually find where are the moments where people are willing to take a step back and see the bigger picture and actually fit, realize that they have to start to navigate their own career. And so it's it, so instead of trying to say like, we're going after this market, we're actually going after people who are kind of like, they, they're, they're on what we call the, the natural progression, but they finally got to a point where they're like, I don't really want the next job. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> right? And so part of it is then how do we actually have them look? And so part of this is finding the spaces where people have the, the mind space to actually think about doing something new or different. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. Uh, I'm really interested to read about that. <laughs> right. Well, I was, I, I was talking to Des Trader the other day and he was talking about like the, the notion is like, so if you think about your employees, like what, what I know and what I've got, so I've been kind of uh, prototyping this for, for five or six years and one of the things we talk about is that everybody who works with me, we talk about the progress that you want to make in the next quarter. And mm -hmm. I talk about the progress I want you to make for me in the next quarter, right? And then when we get to the end of the quarter, we basically say like, what progress did you make? What progress did I make? And how, you know, how did it come together? And what do we want to do differently? And so it's this notion of always kind of looking forward to progress as opposed to trying to put goals and, and, and see everything, you know, like nail everything down. Because again, you don't really know what, like, I don't know what September has to offer, right? right? And so part of this is to be able to actually, how do you build a way to, to plan and help people get better without having to have it be so formalized? Yeah. And does it also help remove kind of the arbitrary nature of like quantitative goals versus like seeing some type of progress? I, I'm, I'm uh, like, I, yeah. So to me, the thing is, is that I'm, I'm actually looking for the emotional and social progress from their perspective, because I think the notion of I say, learn this skill or do that thing, and it doesn't actually make them feel like they're doing their job better, or it doesn't, other people don't see like they can call them to do that. So I, I actually work at, a, at that higher level of the social and emotional piece. And then we break it down into functionally, like, what do you need to go learn? What do we need to have you go try? What, what mistakes can we actually kind of afford to make? And we basically frame out kind of then like over the next, so what happens is, is over the next 90 days, we look for opportunities to kind of fit these things in or, or slow these things down or create space so you can actually learn new skills or do something different. That's awesome. I, I love yeah. that paradigm shift in, in development that way. That's cool. Yeah. It's well, and, and the, I think the hard part to me is that like I, I, over time, I've just gotten to the point of like, I, I feel like planning is, um, 
it's it's rooted from from the at least this is more me personally like i feel it's rooted from the financial world and that they need predictability and the reality is is the more i try to predict the worse things are because i don't literally predict the new things because i don't know like innovation or or product development is, is about unknowns it's not about knowns right and so part of this is actually figuring out, I, I spend more time worrying about the unknowns and how do we actually make the unknowns known? Mm. And, and so to be honest, I'm planning a lot less and I'm more about what's out of bounds. And so it's about this notion of kind of finding the, the playing field and knowing when we've gone out of bounds and where are the unknowns in that playing field. I like that. Yeah. So when I look at like my own role and I know a lot of the folks listening, like leading by influence is something that that's often talked about. Mm-hmm. And I know you do as well, but like the, there seems to be like this real opportunity, even if your marketing team, sales team leadership doesn't understand the concept of jobs, yep. help align the organization around jobs. Yes. So as far as like someone listening to this and saying like, th- this would be great. Cause it really does touch every part of the organization. What, what advice would you give to, to that listener around like first steps or how they can start to make that influence? Yeah. So I think, I think the most powerful tool and the tool that, that I think I use every, every day or just about in every discussion um, is, um, is the forces of progress. Mm-hmm. And so the notion is, is when I'm talking to somebody, like, like when we started our conversation today before we got on, it's like, okay, what's progress look like for John? And so I'm listening for what's the push, what's the pull, what are the anxieties? What are, and I'm trying to actually understand how to make sure that the conversation stays in, in within the playing field and that we're not out of bounds. But at the same time, the fact is, is I know kind of what the progress things are. And so we talked about aligning, how do we align the organization to the jobs? And my thing is, is ultimately it's not hard to get people to align to the customer. I think what happens is you get people who have a hard time to align to quote the jobs to be done. So one of the rules I always uh, tell clients is the first rule of jobs is not to talk about jobs. It's to talk about the customer, right? Because too many people get so obsessed with the method or the tool of this is the right way. And it's like, it's in a, it's, it's again, it's, it's the playing field and it's a really good understanding of kind of why people buy or do what they do. And so I think about it as like, as we're, as we're having a board meeting, for example, and we're presenting to the board, it's like, what progress do the board members want to make? Right. Yeah. Or I'm sitting down with my counterparts in marketing as I'm, I'm launching a software product. It's like, okay, what does progress look like, like for them? And what we end up doing is shaping it because they'll, they'll say, well, we want as many you know, leads as possible. We want to make this email list as large as possible. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Here's, let me redefine what progress really means is I want to make sure that we actually have the right combination of people who basically eventually will buy, but the leads themselves aren't necessarily leads to buy. It's the leads to explore. And so how do we actually help understand what explore means? And so helping them understand what their goals are and reshaping them is kind of, again, using the force of marketing. So I don't tell them they're wrong, but it's more about shaping that direction a little bit differently and kind of breaking it into two or three pieces. Kind of reframing things. Yeah, then- it's always about reframing things. And I think the second one, and this is this is a this one goes very deep and it's it's a it's a form that that, that Taguchi uh, number two up there gave me, which is which is this notion of systems. And he has a very unique way of thinking about systems that are, uh, obviously there's inputs, there's a box where the actions happen, and then there's an output that basically um, is created because of the actions that you took. And so 
a lot of times I'm, I'm using it to understand. So for example, we'll have a conversation about um, this one aspect and they say, well, we have to have trust. And I'll say, is trust an input or is trust an output? And they'll look at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, do I need to have people coming in who already have trust or do they not have trust? And in the actions, I got to create trust. And then how do we measure trust? And they're, they're like, well, we just need trust. I'm like, I appreciate we need it, but we have to cause it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's, if it's an input, then I can screen for it. Right. And if it's not an input, then what are the, what are the tools that I have to do? And by the way, there's a way in which you can cause trust. And so it's very like, this is where you have to actually dig deep enough to actually understand the causal mechanism of how that works. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I think my, my mind just got. <laughs> oh, really? So, so <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you a very tangible example of this. So we're, we're, uh, I was interviewing um, um, some people about uh, switching telecommunications um, uh, services. Right. And it was a, it was a chief financial officer and he was talking about the kind of everything that was going on. And they had had somebody there for uh, tw- the last 18 or 19 years and they had switched to a new carrier. And, and my, my whole thing is, is that at some point it's like, well, what was going on? Well, we had a list and they never actually did it. And so we, we knew we were going to move offices and we figured why we we're moving offices. We'd, we'd change telecommunication, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point it's like, well, you know, I, I brought in four people and, you know, I just felt like I trusted these people. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you trusted these people? Like, like this is the third time you're meeting. I'm like, I know. I'm like, so what did they do? Uh, let me ask this way. What did the other ones do that didn't do trust? Well, number one, they came in and told me, you know, every, everybody they work with, they never listened to anything they did. All they wanted to do is be, want me to be impressed by all the things. What these people did is they came in and asked me questions and they actually had no PowerPoint to even show me because they wanted to learn about my business. So they showed they care. Okay, what happened next? They said, well, you know what? They didn't come back with an answer. They came back with three answers to to literally educate me about what I could do and how I did it. Perfect. What else is like, well, they were responsive. What do you mean? Well, they weren't too responsive. Like some people were so responsive. I felt like they were doing nothing waiting for me. Like they, they'd get back within a couple of hours or within 24 hours. But like, I knew that, they, that I was on their list, but I wasn't necessarily the top person, but, but they were responsive enough. He goes, the last thing though, I have to tell you that they did is I asked for something that I knew they couldn't do. And, and they actually told me, well, if that's what you really want, then you have to go with somebody else. And, and to be honest, the moment they said that, I trusted them because they could tell me no. And the room was like crazed. They're like, what do you mean? They're like, we're never supposed to say no. It's like, but this is how you cause trust. And you have to have these dominoes fall in order for somebody to trust you. Then how do you actually help make sure you understand how to do those things? That's cool. I don't know if there's correlation here, but it, it kind of sounds like like the, the playing field that you were talking about, right? Like they, they knew like when, when to say no because they knew what they could do what they couldn't do. That's right. Well, and they, they, to be honest, they were empowered. Everybody else is so pushed to close that they would basically say like, if this is what you want, I know we can't deliver on it. And uh, the, the, the firm behind them basically said, look, if they want those things and they, and we promise it to them and we can't deliver on it, I don't want to do that business. That's not good for anybody. Yeah. That's right. right. But, but I think the notion here is to understand your counterpart. So like as a product manager, like what progress is marketing trying to make? And how do you actually understand the progress? You know, it's the, what I call empathetic perspective. How do you actually sit in their shoes and understand what are they worried about? What are they actually driving for? What are they willing to take a risk on? And, and a lot of times we're trying to get our point across that we don't actually sit in their shoes enough to know 
kind of where they're coming from to figure out where's the right compromise between the two of us so we both make progress. Yeah, no, I, I love that because yeah, it, it's it's interesting because a lot of times organizations will have like one goal that everyone's driving towards and then like departmentally you have your own goals and so there's yep. nat- natural misalignment that's going to occur but creating that alignment through building trust like you said in that example about asking questions empathizing with with their with what they're trying to accomplish but then actually truly understanding and getting to the bottom of what they're trying to accomplish not just like the surface level we want we want more leads <laughs> yeah, yeah well I, I so i was working with uh, a, a product management team in a i'll say a large retail organization and this was on the digital side and and i'm teaching so right now i'm doing some work where i'm teaching them empathetic perspective and so as they're going in and they're talking about the requirements for this new uh, uh, feature set, the fact is, is that engineering is pushing back just dramatically. And so eventually we basically said, look, let's understand why they're pushing. What are they afraid of? What do they actually not believe in? What, where are they, where's the, where, where's the, where's the gap? And, and what was so interesting is he goes, when I took the 15 minutes to literally sit in their shoes and say, what do you mean by that? And tell me more about why is that important? And why, why is this not the thing to do? Is like, it turned out that it was a language issue. We used the same words, but they had very, very different meanings. And we decided that we actually had to create new language. And within 15 minutes, we literally got rid of 80% of the conflict we had. <laughs> it's crazy. I was literally talking to a gentleman this morning about a similar thing around like, when you're when you're working cross-functionally especially starting in somewhere new that there's going to naturally be different language it's so interesting that that's such a common problem that conflict can come up just by thinking you're talking about the same thing but you're actually not on the same page in terms of language my my thing is is um so one of one of my favorite things is to is to so i coach a lot if you will and i sit in meetings and i'm i'm like on the uh i'm in the back or i'm like in 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 uh, uh, Zoom on the side and just kind of listening. And then I'll, I'll, I'll raise my hand and say like, okay, hold on a second. You just guys just agreed to do something. And I wanna make sure one is the person who's actually giving the assignment, like, what do you really want? And the person who got the assignment, what is the real work? And you start to realize like, they're literally like so far off though. It's like, I need a list of underlying technologies that we need to update in the next or upgrade in the next you know uh, two years. And so the one person's thinking like, this is like, you know, uh, months worth of work. And the other one's thinking about like, well, just sit down and write the bullet point list. And you start <laughs> to realize that all of a sudden the, the amount of work that's required is like, like, let's have a little deeper conversation about what you're actually looking for and what you're going to do with it. So we can actually understand what you need. Because at some point in time, like when you ask an engineer to define, it's usually pretty detailed, right? And you ask them to define something, but they really, you're asking actually for, for like an off the, t- you know, off the top of your head, what are the top three things we need to be working on in the next 24 months, right? And it's like, oh, like where they were thinking you needed the case. And it's like, no, no, no. I just need to know where we're going. Well, why do you think people like fail to follow up with those, those questions? Is it uncomfortability with like going deeper and asking those questions or? So it's, so what's really interesting is I, 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 so um, it gets back again to this empathetic perspective because when you ask the question, like, so, so what did you hear from me? Like it's, it's, it comes across as very arrogant, right? So you have to, you actually have to practice at how to ask that question. So it's like, so we're just not on the on different pages. Can you do me a favor? Play back what you just heard me say, right? Like, how do you do it in a way that's more 
egregious to you than it is to them. Because a lot of times people are asking the question, but the delivery comes across as either arrogant or like, you know, those people who ask a question that they know the answer to, mm-hmm. like who wants to answer that? <laughs> as opposed to like, boy, help me understand. I'm a little confused. Help me understand that. Just adding a little, I'm confused in there helps people literally start to explain things at way better depth, but you have to be humble enough to go like, I'm confused. <laughs> no, that, that's right? interesting. Like actually practicing the delivery of that communication, which. Yes. Yeah. It's very important. Cause again, people will give you different answers on how you, you can give the same. This is why I hate transcripts because I think transcripts, you know, that, that you can say the exact same words, but they actually have completely different meaning. Like for example, you know, well, how do you like the product? Well, the product it's, really good versus the product's really good, right? Said yeah. the exact same words. The, the first time it would be like, all right, so what's wrong with it? Because of the delay and the pot. Like, so I always think of when you get really good at jobs to be done, you not only hear what people say, but how they say it to see the emotion. It's the emotion that's most important and being able to at least understand it and quantify it. Absolutely. In my last company, I had an engineer, uh, an engineering lead that I worked with and like we literally couldn't have slack conversations because like things would just get lost in translation over over text right like we, yep. we have to jump on the phone to, to hash things up so so i talk about uh, the two types of problems there's a there's a, a dictionary problem and there's a thesaurus problem <laughs> and the dictionary problem is when people use the same word but have completely different meanings of it and the and the thesaurus problem is when people use very different words and they actually have the exact same meaning and so you start to realize when you sit in these meetings and people talk, we talk at this level of pablum that like at some point you're kind of amazed we can figure it out. But you realize like if you just spent a little bit more time digging deeper into what people mean, the intent behind what they're asking, you start to realize like we can be way more effective and efficient. Absolutely. So, Well, Baba, I, re- I really appreciated this conversation. I know... Um... I know the listeners are going to enjoy it too. I'm going to go back and listen to it several times because I've just been soaking it in, but yeah, this has been great. I I appreciate you taking out the time. I just wanted to give a shout out to Mike for introducing us and uh, getting us together. And uh, I'd love to be able to come back and uh, any, any question you want to ask, I'm more than happy if you want to accumulate them from your, from your uh, listeners and you want to have a Q and a session or a panel more than happy to join and uh, anything I can do to kind of help product management. I feel like they're the, they're the, they're, it's the emerging um, kind of uh, profession. It's still not quote a profession because you. I'm not sure you can get a degree in it quite yet. But the reality is like it is the combination of like design and engineering and marketing combined into one. Where right now it feels like um, I'll say in the early days it felt like you were herding cats, but I feel like it's moving to this point where now that that, that you can lead the organization um, beyond just um, kind of you know, kind of uh, putting together features and managing, you know, it's not, it's not project management. It's, it's product management. Well, I'm very grateful for the offer and I'll tell you, I'll probably take you up on it. So. Awesome. <laughs> um, but, but before we go, um, as you're writing the books that you're working on, the one that you just released, uh, where can people find this? So I can, um, so best way to follow me is on LinkedIn. Just, uh, you know, you can either follow me or you can just uh, request it. Uh, I'm more than happy. Just say that you heard me on the podcast, more than happy to kind of build my network that way. The book is called Demand Side Sales uh, 101, uh, uh, Stop Selling and Help Your Customers Make Progress. That's uh, It's on Amazon. Um, the next one is called Learning to Build, and it's the five uh, bedrock skills of uh, innovators and entrepreneurs. 
Um, and then the other one is, uh, it's unnamed right now, but it's, uh, it's in the neighborhood of uh, your next thing. So it's, uh, that's the working title that we have, but I'm sure it'll change by the time we get to actual writing. But I'm writing it with uh, um, uh, Michael Horn, who I wrote Choosing College with, and then I, uh, Ethan Bernstein, who's a, a professor at the Harvard Business School. Very cool. Well, I'm, I'll make sure you get all my copies. And uh, for the listeners, if you haven't listened to the Mike Belsito episode yet, uh, go listen to Getting Started with Jobs to Be Done and then come back and re-listen to this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, if you're listening, thanks for connecting us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Great. Have a good, good afternoon. You too, Bob. Thanks for joining me today on Lessons in Product Management. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. The link to our YouTube channel, Path to Product, is in the show notes, and you'll also see the link to donate if you want to help support the podcast financially. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me bring you more content on the podcast, the YouTube channel, and future product management books that are in the works. More details to come. And as always, if you're looking to land your first PM role, join us at pathtoproduct.io, where you'll get the hands-on experience you need to land your first PM job. You'll find the link to Path to Product in the show notes, as well as the other links. And thank you again. I'll see you next time on Lessons in Product Management.